Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Monday. Aren't you excited? I uh, hope you don't have too much of a Super Bowl hangover. It's Hertel's show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Appreciate you being with us. However you're watching or listening, glad that you give us the most precious thing you have, your time. We sure appreciate it. A lot to cover today. We're going to cover some old stories, touching in on them again. Going to talk a little bit about uh, a report about Afghanistan. We're going to talk a little politics. Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, is back. We're going to talk economy. We're going to talk jobs. We're going to talk inflation. We're going to talk affordable housing. All of those have been in the news lately. He's back once again joining us to make it all so easily explainable that even I will understand it. So you're in for a treat with that. Our buddy Jericho Hill later in the program. Also, we're going to talk about hugs. Yes, hugs. Sometimes the science and things like that get a little too complicated and they overrun the common sense things. But yes, go figure. Kids need hugs. And let's be honest, most of the rest of us could stand to have a hug once in a while, too. So we'll talk about hugs. We're going to end this show today. We always try to do a lighter note or a happier note. How about a feller in North Carolina who won a whole lot of money on lottery using his kids' birthdays? So we'll touch in on that. But first, uh, we always talk about uh, being ahead of the news and not reacting to the news. Uh, so we're going to talk for a few minutes over the program today about a narrative that you're going to hear all through this year because you may have heard it's an election year and election years have some tropes and some narratives and some cut and paste to them. You may notice every election is the most important of our lifetime. I fear that we're probably in a cycle where every election was unfairly decided, stolen and or slashed, rigged and or insert whatever else you want in here. So those two things are going to be probably for the rest of our lives, because every election of my lifetime has been the most important election of my lifetime. Go figure. Probably every election from now on, the losing side will say that they were cheated. Go figure. But there's other tropes and narratives and cut and paste things, because let's admit it, I'm one of them. I'm a writer. We like to cheat. We like to be easy. We like to have a template. You know, you can just kind of plug and play and cut and paste, and your article's already kind of written, then you just fill it in. Makes it easy. It's nice and easy. We're all human. We like to do that. One of those narratives, they like to use this thing called the generic ballot. Now, the generic ballot has its uses. The generic ballot is good for telling people the mood of the country. So what they will do is they, they will find a race. In this case, it's going to be the congressional vote. We're going to be looking at real clear politics is uh, 2022 generic congressional vote uh, tallies here. It gives you the mood of the country. If you have a generic Democrat and a generic Republican, which one does better? It's kind of a mood trend thing. Now, we've talked already extensively on this program that midterms are their own different beast. Midterms, especially when you have a party that has full control of power like the Democrats do right now, the midterms usually go poorly for them. 
especially a first-term president, almost always his party does not do well in his first midterms. Now, there's some mitigating factors here. Uh, There's economic factors. COVID, we still haven't fully figured out how that's going to do things. Uh, Former President Trump is doing things differently than any former president ever has, and he's got his vendetta ride he's doing in places like Georgia and Arizona, so that's a little different. But on the whole, cyclically and traditionally, the midterms usually go well for the out-of-power party. So it's no surprise that on the generic ballot, Republicans are doing really well. In fact, they're doing historically well. Uh, The RCP average for right now has Republicans at 46.3 percent, Democrats at 43 percent. That's an outstanding number. For example, uh, presidents in a midterm election year from January to November of that year usually do not improve their approval ratings. Well, if that's the case, then the Democrats are probably in for a really rough ride because President Biden's approval ratings are not great right now. Having said all that, this is a useful tool but it gets overused. The problem here, of course, is there's no such thing as a generic Republican. There's no such thing as a generic Democrat, although let's be honest, President Biden's probably about as close to that as you could get. These people are still candidates. You still have to run a human being, and human beings have flaws. They have baggage, and then they get in front of microphones and video cameras, and they say stuff, and they come off a certain way, and they may do something and have a gaffe, or they may have mistakes in their past, or they may have an unpopular policy position, or they may have a super popular policy position that raises them above their otherwise station. See, politics, how many times do we talk about on this program, get rid of all the data, get rid of all the ideology. Politics is a study of people. And the thing about the generic ballot is it doesn't take into account people. In all these congressional races, yes, overall, Republicans should do great, but they still got to run candidates. And those candidates still have to run good races. And if they don't run good races, even with the national environment going one way, you can have something happen where a Republican candidate in a Republican district can still lose if they do something stupid or if they just run a poor race or a thousand other things can happen. So as you hear this narrative of the generic ballot, yes, it's true the Republicans should have a big year. Yes, President Biden is in a lot of trouble with his party right now, and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to raise them up much. But keep it in perspective, because there is no such thing as a generic Democrat or a generic Republican that's going to show up on your ballot because those people have no negatives. It's all positive. Once you put a name in, now you've got backstory. Now you got history. Now you got politics. Now you got ideology. Now you got gaffes. And you got every single one of these people that are going to be making all kinds of videos that are going to go up. And some of them are going to be great. And some of them are going to be pretty cringy. We've already seen a few of those. So just keep it in perspective when you hear about the generic ballot, that that's a nice tool to use, but it doesn't really mean anything because there's not going to be any generic politicians on the ballots that are getting voted on. And that's the only number that really, really counts. We're going to do a whole lot more hotel short segments so we can get into the important stuff. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. We always try to touch up on stories that we've covered before. We don't ever do hit and runs here. We always want to try to give you good in-depth information. We're going to do it again right now on Afghanistan. I know a lot of people aren't thinking about that anymore, but there's still plenty to learn, lessons to learn, and we better learn them because we're going to repeat the mistakes if we don't. And that one of those biggest lessons is government accountability. The reason Afghanistan went so bad for so long was 
government accountability, or more specifically, the lack thereof. People kicked the can down the road. People didn't want it to stop. People thought it was too big to fail. Remember that term? That could be applied to that as well. And nobody wanted the responsibility for something that they knew was going to end badly. They just didn't want to be the one caught without a chair when the music stopped. Anyway, we know what happened uh, back in the fall. President Biden uh, decided to pull all the troops out. President Trump had already made an agreement to do so. So President Biden rightly points out that he had that to work off of. He also made some decisions in the process of doing that that we can call into question. We can criticize President Trump. We can criticize President Biden. We can criticize President Obama. We can criticize President Bush. You don't have a 20-year disaster piece without a whole lot of blame to share around. But the Washington Post has a piece out about some of the after-action decision-making and reports that are going around. Now, to be really clear here, the administration is pushing back, saying that this is not an after-action report. They're dialing down on that specific verbiage because an after-action report is a very specific thing. Journalism sites, media sites, commentators, they're using after actions much more broadly. It's fair for the administration to point that out, that that is not technically the after action report, which will take some time before it's actually done and is much more comprehensive. But for our purposes of commentating and trying to get information out, yes, it's after the action and we're trying to analyze what happened. So, yes, we're not going to nitpick on that. Sorry, administration, you're going to have to deal with it. I want to drill in on two major points here. Point number one is one we talked about extensively on this program. We talked about it on the old radio show. I've talked about it in my writing. Lots of other people have. Um, So much of the withdrawal was done not on strategy, not on tactics, not on what was best for the troops or our allies, and certainly not what was best for the Afghanistan people. Too much of it was based off of optics. Now, we can relitigate about pulling out when, where, and how. That's not even what I'm talking about. Once that decision was made, it was going to be messy. It wasn't going to be good, and there wasn't going to be any clean way to do it without some bad stuff happening. Even having said that and understanding that's the baseline, this administration, the Biden administration, they're in the chair, they're in charge. They get the credit and the blame when things happen, and they deserve a lot of blame here because they did a lot of things that were optics-based or were uh, easier to deal with-based or path of least resistance-based or out of fear of what optics and things that might happen down the road dictated to them to do and it put our troops in harm's way it hung our allies out to dry and it had dire tragic consequences for both us our allies and especially the afghanistan people so i once again will criticize and this report in the washington post and a lot of other things you're going to find out is going to come out that a lot of the decision making was based on optics and politics and a fear of how it was going to look in the media Instead of dealing with a crisis situation that was costing lives live on the ground, you can read about in the Washington Post. Item number two in this piece by the Washington Post, I'm going to read this verbatim because I want to make sure we have this correct. The second after action analysis, again, the administration is pushing back on that verbiage because it's specific, duly noted. Included in the Abbey Gate report, of course, that's the tragic attack that cost the lives of our service members, focused heavily on the actions of the U.S. Marines at the airport. It concludes that after Afghanistan's government collapsed, there was, quote, and this is quoted here, insufficient airlift in the region needed to rapidly boost the number of U.S. forces at the airport. While considering, this is a quote, while considering in the planning phase, the scope and scale of the desperation population was not fully appreciated, the report states, referring to the tens of thousands of civilians who converged on Kabul's airport seeking a way out of Afghanistan. All right. 
without going into it, just trust me, I know exactly what I'm talking about because I've been there. I did airlift for the United States Air Force. That's what I did. Cabal is a horrible place to have to do a mass airlift at. It's a single runway in an urban environment. It's an absolute nightmare for what you're trying to do because it's set up for commercial operations. You don't have the room, the facilities. This is why we had Bagram Air Base. Bagram was actually an old Soviet base going back years and years. It it was known to be a good strategic location for airlift. That's one of the reasons we took it. One of the first things we did when we went to Afghanistan was we took Bagram. We had built it up. It was one of the best bases we could do airlift out of in Afghanistan. That was the reason. So the idea that you would close Bagram before you did a full airlift to get everybody out was a horrifically bad decision. Almost everybody that knew anything about anything said so. Now, the people that started screaming about reopening it, that, that was not at Once you closed it, you were never reopening it. It was too far away from Cabal to help. You were working off a deadline. Uh, the facilities had already been taken down. It would have took you a week or two just to get it safe, secure, and back up and running. Once you closed it, it was closed. The closing of Bagram is something that needs to be accounted for because it was a true, it was a horrifically, I'm just going to call it what it is. It was stupid. And anybody knows anything about anything knew that that was a bad decision because now you've trapped everybody into the urban environment of Cabal where you are surrounded, where you had no other way out and you only had a single runway. And it's only by the grace of God and a whole lot of good luck. We didn't have an aircraft go down or something else happen to shut that runway down. And then we would have had a real mess on our hands. One other quick point I want to bring up on Afghanistan as we're talking about how it ended. You do not have to take my word for this. You can go back and look. Twitter has a search function. I use it all the time. You should too. The administration is still insisting that they did not know that the country was going to fall that rapidly. You can go look at my Twitter timeline. I was tweeting at the end of July that the country was on the verge of falling because they had already taken massive swaths of the northern parts of the country and elsewhere. If nobody's like me, who has no inside information tactically, who's just reading this stuff from the comforts of my home, was tweeting in July that the country was going to fall. It is inconceivable that the administration did not know that Cabal was in danger of falling to the Taliban in a rapid fashion. And if they did, it was purposeful because that would have to have been willing and ignorance. Everybody knew it. If I knew it, and I'm a nobody doing this on the internet and just blathering on the radio and on podcasts and on my website, they should have known. It's inexcusable. We need accountability. We need more of these reports, and we need serious conversation on how to keep things like this from happening again. But I doubt we have that because part of the problem here was the optics and the politics. And the optics and the politics are going to mean a lot of this is going to get swept under the rug. Nobody's going to pay for the damage they've done, and we're going to be doomed to repeat this again. More Hertel right after this. Ah, heard tell show time talk economics again. When we do this, we have a little rotation of knowledgeable folks we turn to. This is one of them. I was going to tease it like he ain't, but he is Jericho Hill, our friend, Ordinary Times contributor. He works at one of them ABC organizations for the government, but his opinions are his and his alone for the purposes of this talk. Uh, he also talks a little home uh, equity and home buying and affordable housing. We're going to get into that too. But first, my friend Jericho, we have yet another economics report and we have the schizophrenia again. We got great job numbers and bad inflation numbers. Please make sense of this for us. 
All right. So first thing, um, I know it's in the vogue because three-letter agencies are apparently bad things. I don't work for an ABC agency. I work for an ABCD agency. Um, so I'm exempt from all these comments. Uh, from, from and I saw your tweet about that. And that's why I said that because I was hoping to tee you up for it because you sent out a tweet. Oh, yeah. like, I work for a four-letter agency. And I'm like, yeah, hey, oh, family-friendly show. But uh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, but... So- Bring into this. So the, the big number one, and we all can see that the unemployment numbers have been really good. Like the uh, unemployment's quite low. Uh, we still have some long-term unemployed in, uh, in this country. Some folks are simply not going to come back to the labor force. But in general, you look at the unemployment picture, um, and if you didn't know anything else that was going on, you think, "Wow, that's that's actually pretty good unemployment numbers." And that's in the aggregate. Aggregate hides things, but we'll just leave it at that. So let's get into the inflation number that popped. Um, Folks reacted. It was 7.5%. That's an annual rate. That means from January 2021 to January 2022, prices in the basket that the VLS studies went up 7.5%. Okay. So it's a big number. We see folks on both sides of the political spectrum trying to use this for their particular policy uh, endeavors. It's not really as big a number as you might think because it's very context specific to your family's particular situation. So what I mean by that is the biggest drivers, if you look at of this, of 12, of the last 12 months, the biggest drivers of inflation, has, the biggest driver has been in energy. Energy prices over the last 12 months have gone up by about 27 percentage points. All other goods, we talk in food, you know, other things like that, health, those are averaging about 5%. That is a high number, right? Generally speaking, that, that that's a pretty high number um, in a normal time. So I don't want to discount it. I don't want to say there's no inflation. I, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we look at this, it, it's largely driven by energy. And digging into the numbers a little bit further, it's gas prices are up 40% year over year. Fuel oil, you know, that's the electricity and, and gas and everything that you use in your home. That's up 46 percentage points. Piped gas is up 24 percentage points. Oh, and used cars are up 41 percentage points. So we also know that like home prices are up, that, that shelter costs are up a, a, a bit. But your, your mileage may vary. But if you own your own house, which 65 percent of Americans do, you're cost of your of your house hasn't really changed in terms of your mortgage because your mortgage has stayed the same because nobody's on an adjustable rate mortgage anymore. If you haven't bought a used car in the last year, you really haven't noticed that price. New car prices, by the way, are only are, are, are up 12 percentage points. Again, that is high, um, but you know, that compared to 40% like that, that, that's quite a difference. And then, you know, if you um, if you happen to be someone like me who hasn't driven very much because you've been teleworking this whole commute, I actually looked at my odometer. My, I bought my car about a year ago. I've got less than 5,000 miles on it. I haven't really noticed what gas prices are. I think they're three something. Yeah, so they're up the point there. is you're, you're going to, you, you know, like what I experience, you know, is not what, what other folks experience, but like the salience of price rises, it's going to hit a particular demographic. Um, those are going to be your renters and your lower incomes and people that are dependent upon driving to work every day because guess what? They don't have a cushy telework job. Yeah. And the problem is the things you're talking about, used cars, 
uh, electric prices. The service industry workers, the lower end wage workers, the people that really took a beating the last two years, those are probably, if you take the five or six most expensive things they spend money on other than where they live, it's their car, it's their fuel costs, it's their electric bill. This, this is These are numbers, and we're talking about them as reports, but to certain demographics and the lower down the economic structure you go, the bigger an issue this is. This is some real-world impactful stuff that's really, really hitting people hard right now. Yeah, absolutely, especially at the lower end. And, I mean, look, let's, let's be honest. Why, is, why are we seeing a lot of energy focus on this? We're, what, eight months away from a big election again, midterms. So, you know, pressure's on to bring down the inflation. Now, I'm in the camp that I think that we are, we're, if, we, if we're looking at the changes, so, for instance, the month-over-month change, which in October was 0.9 percentage points. That's not annualized. That's just a month-to-month change. In November, it was 0.7. In December, it was 0.6. And January, it's 0.6. That's telling me that sort of we're over the wave of inflation continuing to increase and increase and increase. And so I would expect this wave, if current conditions hold, that's a big if, to to start cresting down. Now, the Federal Reserve is going to help matters quite a bit. Uh, I'm a little bit more bullish on what the Federal Reserve is going to do uh, come February or March. Keep in mind, the Federal Reserve can raise their rate in between meetings. I'm either anticipating a mid-meeting raise of 25 basis points or a March raise of 50 basis points. But I'm leaning towards they're going to do a mid-meeting raise pretty soon. Now, again, I'm not a monetary policy economist. I'm kind of spitballing here. But um, I think these numbers are enough to tell them, and I bet they're getting some pressure that they got to start reining in the inflation right now. And, and so the way the Federal Reserve does that is they, they jack their federal funds right up. Yeah, we're talking to Jericho Hill. All right, but explain that to me like I'm five, because we've been talking about inflation so much. I think people maybe just kind of gloss their eyes over. Or they, they, it's become a buzzword. If the Fed raises interest rates, which everybody thinks they're going to do, it's just a matter of when and how much and how often. A lot of reports say they think maybe three raises over the next year or so is what they're looking at trying to do here. What oh, I'm that, definitely above that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's concert. I think they may do three by the end of the summer, but let's not get into that right now. Explain it to me like I'm five, though. What does it mean that they have to raise interest rates to curb in inflation? Because these interest rates, we were talking about fuel prices, gas prices, you start jerking around interest rates, that has a massive effect. And again, it's a proportionate effect the further down the economic structure you go because people with loans, people with savings accounts, this is going to change a lot of stuff for a lot of people in a hurry if that number starts moving. Sure. So first off, on the number of races, I'm going to quote Big E, and I'm going to say three ain't enough, I need five. And that's a little wrestling reference for everybody. Uh, number two, let's go back to the inflation story real quick. I told, I said the driver, a good bit of this has been fuel prices, gasoline, oil, right? Our ability to influence oil prices is not so great. That That's really a worldwide issue. Like everybody's dealing with that. Every developed country has skyrocketing inflation right now. Um, and oil is probably one of these classic supply chain issues. Um, what can we do about that? Not much. Well, let's pivot to what can the Fed do, right? Uh, the Fed can raise with its Fed funds rate, which is sort of a rate of, uh, that determines sort of your interbank borrowing and stuff like that. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too much, but you know it has indirect impacts on the economy. But generally what raising that rate does is it tends to slow down economic activity. 
economic activity being a little bit slower, sort of, I guess, would be, you know, less price rises, less changes going on. So it's sort of like hitting a gas break, hitting, I mean, sorry, gas break, hitting the brakes on the economy. And they're trying to do it in such a way that they're trying to sort of glide in, you know, like, I'm sure you've done this a number of times, the light turns turns red and you're not quite at that light yet. And you just sort of like slow down for a little bit instead of just stopping because you hate stopping and wait for the light to turn green. Then you can rough it back up again, right? So you never actually stop. Um, I think that's what the Fed's going to try to do. That, that's how I would explain what, what goes on when they raise these rates. So if I, I you know, explain it like I'm five level. They're just trying to hit the gas, the hit the brakes just a little bit, slow things down, let things catch up. Yeah, we're talking to Jericho Hill, a little economics today. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more economics, finish off our discussion about the CPI uh, report. We're going to get into a little bit of affordable housing. That was all over the news last few days. So we'll talk about that more with Jericho Hill on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. I'm joined with Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, who explains the economic numbers that have been confusing everybody, especially people like me. So thank you, Jericho, for being with us again. All right. Uh, you talked about the CPI report. Everybody was kind of freaking out at that seven plus number for inflation. But there was other good economic news. The last job reports number was probably beyond the administration's wildest dreams for a number they could put out on a press release. Very good number, very good news, correct? Well, that's an interesting way to, to tee in. He is a good friend of mine, and he has dived into this job market report. And what he actually found is that, yes, on the surface, it looks like a great job report. But underneath uh, what we see is that a lot of the growth that we saw, and one we see, we see the job where we see that Omicron really did a number of jobs for a while because it shut things back down. But a lot of the growth is due to, you know, methodological changes, which are not nefarious. It's just you change a data source, right? Or you you change over from from you know moving from one year to another, and there's just squirrely things that happen with the data. Actually, I come out thinking that you know yeah, it looked like a good jobs report, but it probably and it probably is a good jobs report. I want to be clear, but it wasn't as good as it looks like because of some of these little quirks and how the data is collected, um, and how the data gets reported. And there, there's again, there's nothing nefarious about that. It's just you know, everybody's got their cycle. We do this in this month, and we do this change in this month, and that's just sort of what happens. I also found when he came out with that report, and his Substack's excellent, by the way. Go subscribe for it. Um, yeah, seriously, this is a, I, this this is a guy that I'm encouraging to go get a PhD because uh, I'm not I'm not somebody that that has a PhD. Sort of like you got to have that to be a good economist. I'm not somebody that you know professes that you've got you you know everybody with a PhD you know is expert and whatnot. But unfortunately, uh, in the econ world, uh, having a PhD is sort of the gateway in. Um, and yeah. I think he's doing great work, but I want him to be listened to more. Yeah, and, I highly and, recommend and, it. And when and, I read and it, I hope he does. Yeah. And when I read it, the thing that jumped out to me was his whole premise. And this is a long post. This is an in-depth post he did on this. He said, and he called it, he said, this is the most complicated job reports we've ever had. And that really speaks to kind of the, you know, this third or fourth time you've been on here and we've talked about it is, this is a really complicated economic time where we, we joke about the numbers not making sense and there being contradictory information. 
But this really is one of the more complicated and interesting economic times we've had in recent memory, isn't it? Yes, that that fake Chinese curse proper, but you live in interesting times. So yeah, it's happened here. Look, we have we 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 artificially shut down our economy, and and most countries did artificially shut down their economy for a little while. That's unusual. We then had rapid uh, stimulus activity and did a lot to sort of make sure that folks were okay because we shut down the economy. And that shutdown was going to happen whether the government did it or not. People were going to react, you know, you know, because, hey, pandemic, it's scary, you know. And, and now we're coming back and we're seeing, you know, what's happening. And look, people are, are moving to a, a much greater degree than we, we, we thought. You know, you've got, again, you've got white collar workers doing remote work and, and choosing to relocate. Just look at what's happened out in Boise with 30% year over year house price increases. That's crazy. Um, we've got... Um, Workers at the uh, upper end of the age spectrum, simply like, I'm not coming back to work. You know, uh, they've they've dropped out. People are changing jobs, uh, especially amongst the the beleaguered retail sector and healthcare sector. Um, sort of sick of how people have been treating them, and because there are um, a, a dearth of, of workers sort of out there. Um, they're seeing their sort of ability to to get concessions and raise their wages to to to, to be really improved. Another thing that's happened is is we basically shut down immigration in this country for two years because of, of the pandemic restrictions. So we haven't had those folks coming in. So that's also decreased our labor supply. Yeah, how do we get, you know? There's a like you said. There's a lot that's changed in these two years, uh, and the amazing thing is. This really wasn't anything that we anticipated. There's going to be a lot of research papers coming out in the next five to 10 years from economists, you know, um, looking at this as um, what we call like a natural experiment. Like normally, like if we want to do an experiment, you know, we have to go into a lab setting or we have to do very complicated math to, to figure out what caused what. You know, in this case, you know, this pandemic, right, we the, out of our control, it happened. It changed things, you know, and then we could, we'll be studying the reactions to this for a very long time. Yeah. Talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend, he likes to talk about affordable housing though. So, but when the time we got left, I want to ask you about this. Let's just talk about a big picture though, because part of the problem with the affordable housing debate is, um, especially if you're very online, there's, there's just the very wonky policy heavy camp of it. And then there's what I call the meme camp of it, where they just take pictures of stuff and go, oh, look at these horrible, evil pictures and look at this picture. And I don't think either one of those are particularly helpful to the overall discussion. I understand it's a complicated policy issue. Is there a better way to discuss this? Because things like affordable housing is a really important issue. But it seems to me, because I'm just a layperson, it seems to me like we don't have a good way to actually discuss this in a way that would bring in people that aren't just into it as a niche figure or that it directly affects. Can we talk about this in a better way, do you think? So one of the ways that I, 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 I try to talk to people um, when I do sort of my advocacy work here in the D.C. Re- region um, is, you know, we talk about that you can build, for instance, just an example, but like you can build a duplex that looks like a single family house. And so for folks that are concerned that the dramatic, the appearance of their neighborhood is gonna dramatically change and that's gonna affect their property values. The, the truth is no, you can densify housing uh, without actually changing the fundamental appearance of housing in a neighborhood. 
the other thing that I that I that I you know sort of talk about is you have folks that get afraid um, and rightly so about how changes because they're again they're, the change is very local and folks like me come in from 40 miles away to say oh it's fine I think maybe that there's and some of our community organizations try to do this uh, a dialogue between those who are going to be most directly affected and sort of what the community at large and what what the goals and objectives are trying to be and why this makes sense you know but I mean treat the human, treat them as human, you know, like I, I don't, I don't try to say that NIMBYs are all bad people. I don't think that they are, you know, um, I think that one, they're responding to the incentives that we have as a society. Um, and, you know, generally also as a society, we're a little bit hesitant to change. Um, and they have concerns. They're concerned about what is density going to do? Is, it, is there going to be too many cars, you know, and, you know, as an economist that works on this, we have ways to design uh, cities and redesign them such that you know that that concern can be alleviated. We get concerns here in Alexandria about how does increased density um, affect flooding, you know, and how does that affect our stormwater drains? Because Alexandria floods, you know, and that's if you're a property owner in Old Town Alexandria dealing with that flooding issue, yeah, you'd be concerned about more density creating you know more floodable opportunities. But again. There are ways we can design our buildings and design our streets and design our sidewalks that can help mitigate, you know, those effects. And so I think that we get wrapped up a little bit in, you know, this is change is going to, to happen uh, and we might spring it on folks. Whereas if we had a, a process where we, where we, you know, sort of spent more time describing what's going to happen and, and spent more time helping folks understand like, yes, we understand that you're going to, to, to your fear about flooding issues, but here's what we're doing. Here's A, B, and C, and these mitigate any increased flood risk. So your flood risk is not changing. People are going to have to observe that what the policymakers are saying holds, and maybe that engenders a little bit of trust. Yeah. Talking to Jericho Hill, this is an unfair question to end on, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious and I just want to know the answer to it. Uh, we went through the housing crisis of the late aughts, 08, 09. Uh, that was a predatory lending crisis as much as a housing crisis, but it affected housing, so we call it a housing crisis. Is there just been a paradigm shift when it comes to homes and home ownership where it's so much more debt heavy and mortgage heavy than equity heavy? Is that just a paradigm shift Never, nobody ever stopped and kind of considered? Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, like it used to be um, you you bought your home. You sold your home, and if you wanted a bigger home, then you sold the home you had and you move up. Now, with the way mortgages are set up and you have much more high-risk mortgages and stuff, it's way more debt burdensome. And well, it seems to me with the once you put things like predatory lending and some of the regulatory stuff and those sorts of things on it, that's a big change in how people try to move up in the world. And it's a lot sure, more okay. pitfall. It has a lot more pitfalls in it than the old way of doing it. I'm not saying you can ever go back to the old way because you can't. But I don't think we ever stopped and considered that that's a big shift in how people do things. So the first thing that I would say is, um, one, there's there's not a lot of predatory lending. And what you're talking about, a classic example from the 0608, is what we call ninja loans. No job, no income, no assets. You know, um, Those kinds of loans, the adjustable rate mortgages, they're not necessarily predatory lending, but they can catch, people's, uh, you know, catch people by surprise with adjustments. 
those sorts of features, they're, they're gone from the market. The average credit score of, uh, of a mortgage uh, borrower in this country is exceedingly high today uh, compared to what it looked like before the, before the housing crisis of the knots. Um, we haven't seen rapidly deteriorating credit quality as well. It's just, it stayed very high. Uh, in fact, um, in major metropolitan areas, a lot of the homes that are bought and sold uh, don't qualify for a traditional conventional mortgage because their loan amount's too big. They call jumbo loans. We've actually seen these jumbo loans, which used to be riskier mortgages, because these jumbo loans um, have um, other sort of requirements, they're now actually at par or less risky than your standard conventional mortgage. So it's a housing market, you know, where I would say now it's, it's, it's the, the risk of the risk pool is, is pretty minimal for when we look at the borrowers. Um, the biggest risk in the housing market and why some of my you know, housing market colleagues um, you know, describe it as the most unhealthiest housing market that we've seen in a long time is um, generally speaking, inventory, which is the number of homes on the market, is about four months. And that's a sign of a good market. You have enough homes on the market so people can make good decisions and good choices and, and match appropriately, but homes don't really you know, come off the market the next day. Homes are coming off the market the next day. Inventory is down to below two months uh, across the U.S. That's, that's not healthy. Now, to get back at your point about what we're doing with, with equities and, and, and whatnot, I still think it's there for folks to build equity in, in homes and then try and then sell and then move up to the next home. One of the things that changed, Andrew, after the Great Recession, and you did sort of highlight this, is that we went from having a surplus of homes being built to demand for homes needing to be built to having a dearth. So we, we basically were not creating housing supply to keep pace with demand after the 2008 crisis. So that means, you know, functionally that folks can't move into their next home. Folks can't use the equity from their home to buy up and buy a bigger house or move further out or do whatever it is because those there's not enough homes out there. There's not enough entry-level homes being built for folks to go from renting to owning in some respects. So I think that's a big challenge for the housing market going forward. And unfortunately, that's a challenge that one is a local solution, not a national solution because it requires local zoning laws to change. And it requires the construction industry to be able to build homes, and and it does not it, it 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 does not take a short period of time to build a home. It takes a very long time. It takes a year, two years for the whole permitting process all the way through. Yeah, and we use uh, people don't realize one of the reasons they use homes for an economic indicator is I forget to know it's something like 25, 26 different trades have to go into building one home. There's so much other stuff that goes into building a home. That's why they use it as an indicator. Uh, Jericho Hill. Very good point. Yeah. Jericho Hill. This is why we talk to you because we always run out of time compared to the amount of material to get through. That's why we keep bringing you back and we will have you again. Let folks know where they can find you on the Twitter and where you've been writing and what you've been doing so that they can follow you between your appearances here on Hurtel. You can find me as Motoconomist on Twitter. I have a substack called Quiglian, um, which is just, you know, the address is jerichohill.substack.com. 
That I do once a month. I post up some housing stats. I pull it from Zillow, from Redfin, from Mortgage Bankers Association. Um, it's just kind of letting people know at a quick glance, if you're not a housing economist, where we're going and what and what the findings are. Um, and I guess over the next month, what am I going to be doing? A whole lot of sitting here home. <laughs> uh, well, you do it so maybe, well. And, and maybe, I, maybe I should say, go Joe Burrow. Uh, see. I'm pulling for you. It's bad enough we had Swift on the other day, who's Captain Ohio everything, and he's a Browns fan, and even he was all about the Bengals. All it's all it, I told him the same. It's it's a hard team not to like. Like just everything about them, they play fast, they play joyfully. I think the Rams are probably going to beat them because they're just a vast. The the Rams' strong suit is their defensive line, and the <laughs> Bengals' weakness is their offensive line. That usually doesn't bode well for a football team, but we'll see what happens. Burrow's fantastic, but it's a hard team not to like. I'm with you. So anyway, yeah, uh, I mean, they've just had such a long time from them not being in the Super Bowl that, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited to see them, you know, getting the shot. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the last time they were, uh, barely. <laughs> Jericho Hill, thank you for the time today, buddy. I appreciate your time, my friend. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. back to Hertel. Here's one from the Common Sense Department, but since it's on CNN, we're going to call it a science feature. Quote from CNN Health, there's just something about a hug. After a child has had a hard day of feeling alone and stressed, it seems like a hug from someone they love could be just the cure. It's not just a feeling, experts say. Evidence shows it's important to our well-being at every stage of life. Quote, good contact helps soothe the nervous system and plays an important role in regulating emotions, said Lisa Demur, an Ohio-based clinical psychologist specializing in the development of teenage girls. Hey, I could have used you a couple of years ago. Where were you at? In the time of abrupt changes and prolonged uncertainty, it could be argued that many children and adults need hugs now more than ever. The access to soothing physical affection, however, has been shrinking as people keep their distance from one another to keep safe from COVID-19. The challenge, this is Demur quoting again, is that children and especially adolescents get a lot of comfort from physical contact with their peers and their presence, physically wrestling, bumping into each other, sitting close, playing, interacting. It's not just hugs from parents to children and peers that has not only been reduced by the pandemic because of our expectation of kids to keep a good distance, but it's also been policed. Demur added, rather than get relief, they get correction. Without as many play dates, sports, and other opportunities for community contact, many children could be getting could be getting the physical comfort they need from their immediate families, Demur said. But not every family has the same culture around hugs. And with so many things to worry about in this pandemic, families could miss signs that their children need a little warmth and attention. Hug your children, especially when they're little. Take it from somebody who has their children are all now ranging from young adults to their middle and late teens. The day's coming where they're not going to let you hug them anymore because they're just not into that as much. Hug them when they're young. It's important. And the adults in your life and anybody else, hug them too that's willing as long as it's consensual. Be nice. Be respectful. I'm a hugger. I like hugs. Hugs are a good thing. We need physical contact, and we need to be especially sensitive to these children who have spent the better part of two years in school situations and other situations where they have been told to go against their own tendencies to play, to have physical contact with others, to have friends close by. This has dramatical effects 
on them. We talked about this with Dr. Katie Gordon on the Hertel podcast. You can go listen to that wherever you're subscribed. She goes into it in depth. We're going to be getting data for years on what the pandemic has done to our children. You think about a child that had to go without hugging their friends or talking to their friends or playing tag, just simple things can make a world of difference. Hug your children, love your friends, hug your family. Everybody's going to have a day either where they grow up or God forbid some tragedy or they just move away and life changes or you won't get to hug them anymore. You don't get time back, folks. Hug them babies and love each other as much as you possibly can. More Hurtel right after this. Yeah, Hurtel Show. This is a fun one. Uh, we always end on a lighter note or a happier note because we got to cover a lot of heavy topics. Uh, y'all play lottery. We don't endorse gambling, of course. Some other programs might, but we don't. We do not condone such things. But, but if you do take part in the lottery, uh, in North Carolina, man, this is from United Press, found children are truly the gift that keeps on giving when he played their birthdays in the lottery and won $110,000. Louis Payne Jr. of 77 of Fletcher told North Carolina education lottery officials the tickets he bought for the one Feb 5 cash five drawing bore a set of numbers adapted from his children's birthday. Payne said he was shocked to discover the ticket he bought from the Ingalls store in Fletcher was a $110,000 winner. I was flabbergasted, Payne said. That's a fantastic word that needs to be used more often. Good job, Mr. Payne. Well done. Of course, I didn't believe it. Payne, a retired teacher, there's just some irony, says he likes playing the lottery because of the funds that go to the education in the state. Boy, you just couldn't write that one any better for the propaganda of the lottery for the state of North Carolina, could you? Anyway, quote, giving back to the education is very important. It's the greatest thing we have in our country. Payne said he plans to invest some of his winnings and share the rest with his family. I don't know what their cut is for using their birthdays are, but there you go. Some other day we will get an expert on and we will discuss how much education actually benefits from things like the North Carolina Education Lottery. But let's not rain on Mr. Payne's parade Good for him. Congratulations, sir. Enjoy it in good health, as they say. That'll do it for Hertel for this Monday. I hope you all had a good weekend. Hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl. Busy week. A lot of stories to cover. A lot of stories we're going to touch back up on. It's one thing we promise to do to you on this show. We don't just do hit and runs. If we cover something and new information arises or the story evolves, which it almost always does, we're going to come back and touch on it. So we're actually working on getting some guests on to talk about stories we've already touched on. Of course, it's going to be a busy year, election year. Uh, the Supreme Court is going to start ramping up here soon with the new nominee from President Biden, which he has promised towards the end of this month in March. So we're going to have plenty to talk about, plenty of news cycle to turn down the noise on, get the good information. You can do it right here every weekday. If you haven't already, please subscribe, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please subscribe. It's very important. Make sure you don't miss anything every morning. By the time you wake up, you will get that weekday's episode it'll be waiting for you when you get up unless you're like me and get up way early to make sure it actually went in properly uh weekends we will have the herd tell podcast a little longer form deep dive discussions on things the latest one is on mental health dr katie gordon make sure you check that one out also every afternoon if you are subscribed you will get the good talks that's the interview portion of that day's program just the interview broken out people ask for that people have responded for that great thing to share it's a little more broken down specific to the issue. If you want to share it to different people, post it on your social media, that'd be great. Anytime you can do that, 
please do share us with your social media, all those platforms, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, Facebook. If you're using the Big Talker network feed, you can share it and we sure appreciate it. We don't do any advertising here other than our social media promotion and word of mouth. And yet we are growing. We've had week over week growth every week since we started this program. That's all because of you listening. And we thank you very, very much for it. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep doing it and keep trying to do things the right way and give you good information. It's a privilege to do it, and we thank you for the ability to do it. So wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well-fed, especially after the Super Bowl. Everybody should be well-fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow with more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.